Hello and welcome to the Week in Review. I'm Michael Curzon and I'm joined as ever by SD Wicket. Sam, how are you? Good, Michael. Uh, for today's weather update, it's taken a turn for the worse. It's grey and rainy, but apparently sunny tomorrow when our loyal fans are listening to this. Marvellous. There you are. That means that they'll all be outside and doing anything but listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> they are. And uh, also joined by Luke Perry. Luke, how are you? I'm very well, and I think we've had a reversal of fortune here because whilst it is grey and rainy in um, Essex, it is uh, a bit sunny in Birmingham. Give it to us. Change. Give it to us. The Midlands. (laughs) It's on its way up. (laughs) Uh, Well, it's it's also taken a turn uh, in in the news regarding COVID, although I suppose actually it hasn't since it's been pretty much fourteen months of relentless uh, negative news. but we'll start anyway on the on the news which took place just a couple of hours ago, which is that Britain's medicines regulator has approved the Pfizer vaccine for use in children aged 12 to 15. So this is essentially a step towards the, the vaccination of our children against COVID. And whilst it, children aren't yet included in the, the government's rollout, and I think it's the JCVI, which is the uh, one of the government's main advisory boards, on vaccination that has to approve the move. Um, And then of course the government, this is pretty much uh, a a very large sign that approval for use and inclusion within the rollout is gonna happen imminently. So what's your take on this story? Well, for a start, I don't know what the hell teenagers and children have to do with vaccination. I mean, this is, yeah. I mean, if we're looking at so uh, one other story that we've seen this week is that um, it's like close to 100% of people over the age of 75 have now been fully vaccinated. So the, the cohort responsible for an overwhelming majority of the deaths by this virus are now um, on paper protected. So why this needs to carry on and, and move through each age group from this point onward just doesn't, is kind of baffles me. The fact that children are now going to be expected to take the vaccine and therefore will be um will therefore will be held to whatever standards the government lands on in, in, in respects to vaccine passports it just it baffles me i think what the most glaring point about this is that the um, the medicines authority have said it's safe for children to take but the um they declare that the benefits of having the covid jab outweigh the risk which is a a highly contentious view to say the least regarding the vaccination of children considering s- some weeks past we brought up figures that said that um it is more dangerous for a, a young healthy person to take the vaccine than it is of covid because they're more likely to get a blood clot than they are to wind up in an icu yes yeah. well, that, that, that just for point on this was the specifically the astrazeneca vaccine has also been linked to to johnson and johnson um, but but even side effects aside, I mean, it, talking about the side effects, this isn't just us saddos on Bornbrook talking about this or or even uh, on the other uh, you know, websites out there, but even people close to the government are questioning the, the need to vaccinate children. Adam Finn, who's a member of the, the JCVI, which again is the, the advisory board on vaccination, um, to the government said that children shouldn't be vaccinated as a point of principle because of the side effects. So there is the side effect question, certainly. But also, as you both said, the point that children are at, I mean, to say next to no risk is <laughs> over-egging it a bit. Uh, essentially no risk from COVID itself. Um, and given that those who are at risk have already been vaccinated, uh, there's, there's 
little chance of a child if they were to get the virus from passing it on to somebody and doing them harm as a result of that. It, it, it actually goes further than the, the top age groups having been fully vaccinated. It's now 50% of the whole UK population has been fully vaccinated. So the need for children is just absolutely zero, yet I don't doubt for one minute the government will push ahead with it. Zero in respect to the coronavirus. I mean, when I was 11, I was I was jabbed against tuberculosis, right, which is fine. Children can die of tuberculosis. But um, yeah, with, with a virus where if you're under the age of, what, 60, your survival rates are, you know, between 99 and 100%. So um, and even then they say, oh, it's about passing it on. But again, the people you'd pass it on to on paper are protected. So, <laughs> it, yeah, um, logic would dictate that as soon as the the vulnerable cohorts were again on paper safe then there would be no more onus to do any of this stuff but uh you know we're we we'd be fools to believe that these people would stop there no as, as we've done as we've noticed and said many times before the um the goal the goalpost is not the the vaccination of vulnerable people it is literally zero covid it is a, yeah. a total wipeout of, of the disease, which is impossible considering it's now endemic to the population. It's a, it's a, it's a Canusian task. You, you may as well go to the sea and try and fight the waves. Yeah. Well, there's a really interesting quote from Matt Hancock uh, last week, which really illustrated this. It was, I think, at the point when uh, the, the vaccination programme had reached 75% of the UK population in terms of a first dose. And he said, well, it's great that 75% of people have received the first dose, but that still means that 25% haven't. And it's great that at that point, 45% have been fully vaccinated, but that means that a majority still haven't been fully vaccinated. So it, I don't think it matters how far you get. You could say the exact same thing with 90% vaccinated, so 10% still not, and they'd still be unhappy. Um, one guy so in a log cabin can uh, still concern the government. Yes, exactly. Someone who, <laughs> who lives completely isolated from anybody, but still must be vaccinated before we can uh, even think about pulling out of lockdown. And of course, one of the one of the main drivers of this around fear is the the Indian or now the the Delta variant, as we're supposed to call it, um, and deaths as a result of that. But over the past few weeks, that's just not been materialising. I mean, death rates have been plummeting for weeks and weeks. They've been erring around the one, two and three marks, or at least in single figures, uh, for, for quite a long time until they finally got to zero last week across the whole of the UK, which in my eyes is a really embarrassing moment for the government actually in trying to justify lockdown. And I think as we're recording this, there's been a slight increase and the Mail has reported 85% increase, something like that. But still the figure is about 18, yeah. not even well, 20, which is nothing. That that that's where they editorialize, right? They mm. they they talk about um you know this massive increase in, in in deaths, but the starting point is like several people. Yeah, it's like um when 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 there was a big scare around the the um the Bolton outbreak of the of the the, the new variant, they were saying you know a hundred percent of those in hospital um weren't vaccinated, but that number was very low. Yeah. You know, they they don't give you the raw number. They 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 mask it with you know percentage increase. And they give the raw number when it suits. Like the yeah. um the, the the ever ever ticking death toll on the news. They say oh an extra five people died of COVID. This takes a total to one hundred fifty thousand. When the, when the numbers are low, of course, it doesn't it doesn't have that big of a scare factor. That's, that's what, what that's, roll in. 
that's what I noticed during the first wave when every day around 5 p.m. I get this buzz on my phone. It'd be the news app on my phone telling me today's death toll. And it was, you know, apocalyptic every day. And then once it started getting low around the summer, end of the first wave, those they vanished, came back again in the autumn, winter. And now, they, now, now they've gone again because the daily death toll, when you look at how many people actually die a day and how many deaths a day COVID is responsible for, the fact that our lives are still controlled by the whims of a, a virus that seems, seems to mutate every other week is is un, is not justified at all. Well, you made a good point there, Luke, about how they managed to make the figures look scary, even when they're really not. So, as you said, I remember reading last week, there's a day when I think there were zero COVID deaths in England, in Wales and in Northern Ireland and one in Scotland. Um, so what they did was say, the total number of deaths in the UK is now 155,678, whatever it was. Whereas the day before it was 77, a ridiculous thing to say. Why do you, why do you need to every single day put on the full number when it's but, one different? It's just to make the figure still look scary, even though literally one person has died. And by the way, something we can come onto in a moment, might not even died of COVID. COVID was on the certificate in some sense, or might not even have been there, actually. They, they just happened to have COVID and died within 28 days of a test, which, by the way, is also not particularly secure. Um, PCR tests, all the lateral flow tests, they've all been found to be uh, not particularly suitable, in, uh, especially for use in asymptomatic people. But uh, even regarding people who are symptomatic, they can be... Um, not so not so great at pulling out the results which demonstrate the truth mm. that that's the key the the key is in the asterisk which is within 28 days yeah. i mean what other what other pandemic has has this happened in where people who aren't sick are being treated as if they are people who don't have symptoms are being treated as if they're um Part of it, 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 yeah, it's it, it is it is baffling. The, the numbers are being played with. Um, if you if you take what really matters, which is symptomatic cases, people being hospitalised and people dying, it's it's a it's a drop in the ocean compared to what else is happening in the country. Mm. And again, well, on that actually, um, actually, no mention by the press conferences or by these articles which spin out the figures of one more death on the amount, say, of cancer deaths in that day, of, of people who have died of cancer because they were only able to get late screenings, despite having been desperately getting in touch with the GP for months and been ignored, uh, or had over-the-phone consultations, which uh, in many cases have been completely useless. So yes, as, as, as one or two people, or occasionally zero people die of COVID through the days, more and more die of the other things which have happened as a result of lockdown. <laughs> And how COVID deaths are calculated and totaled up? Like, like, well, dying of COVID if it's a positive case within 28 days, would that show that the virus isn't as dangerous as some may think it is? Because if, I mean, if there was um, a COVID case and it is dangerous as the media hype it up to be, you wouldn't need to span it out over an entire month. It well, would be clear. It would be clear cut that this person has died of COVID. Hmm. Yeah, and on that. Um, so over the last, the, the Telegraph did a report two days ago uh, based on ONS figures, and they found that in the last, I think it was the last two months, there'd been about 109 COVID deaths, something like that. 40% of them had been deaths of people from other causes. 
So again, they had COVID, but the major cause of death wasn't COVID. It wasn't cited as the main reason of death on the death certificate. Yet that was still used in the figure. That was still the figure which allowed them to say there have now been 150,000 and X number of deaths in total. Yet it had um, may have been completely unrelated to COVID. They just happened to have it, or it was a subsidiary to that. Um, but of course, again, none of this is really portrayed effectively. Um, that might have been on page, what, 10 of the Telegraph, the <laughs> um, paper which few people read in the first place, uh, and certainly not put on any other more mainstream outlets. The biggest kick in the teeth of this is in the months or years down the line when inquiries are drawn up and they go back through the archives into um, COVID cases and they'll find this person died of a heart attack, this person died of diabetes. And then the figure which been used to scare the country into submission, into house arrest, has been whittled down to say 50,000. That would be interesting. Well, that's, that's, the, that's, that's the Bournebrook prediction there. Place your bets on the, the true figure that will be found in the future. Oh, if, if the figure is found, right? I, I, I don't have much faith in any in any COVID inquiries who actually hold the government to account for the the, the manipulation and fear mongering of the people. No, this is um, and, and this is not me being conspiratorial. This this is this is what the press, the civil service, Sage, and the health office have have done, which is one of the largest scare operations in in the history of mass communications. Absolutely. Well, I, I suppose it's the first pandemic like this where the media has been such a big player. Which is it's, 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 it's the first true pandemic of the social media age, too, where things get distorted, things get um, put into little partisan boxes and it becomes a political issue. Um, yeah. If COVID if COVID had happened and it. it and there is an example, you know, SARS happened in the early 2000s. And I know the numbers weren't as bad with SARS, but like at the beginning when it was still burgeoning, um, the absence of social media and that kind of reverberation was felt. They, you know, the the um, the hysterical fear just wasn't there when it was from 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 the first day we were seeing you know images of of the Wuhan you know, ghost town, people being welded into their homes and you know dropping dead on the street, which obviously didn't transpire in the West. Um, it it seemed inevitable that that this either wouldn't end for a very long time or wouldn't end at all. Mm. Well, since you've mentioned Wuhan, let's let's go on to the uh, the notion of where the virus came from in the first place. Now, there's been a lot of different ideas about this, and for a long time, the idea that that COVID sort of leaked from a lab, the the Wuhan Institute of Virology, was dismissed by pretty much everybody actually in the mainstream media as a conspiracy. Um, but as with, as with most things that were early on dismissed as conspiracies over the past 14 months, it's now becoming sort of common knowledge to an extent. It's not yet been confirmed by everybody, um, or anybody rather, but there's a lot of evidence coming out. Interestingly, evidence that was written about, discovered many, many months ago, but which publishers at the time refused to put in their journals, um, but now increasingly are more willing to talk about. One of the one of the most eye-opening moments, I think, was when the World Health Organization uh, carried out a, a kind of inquiry into the, the lab leak theory, um, which was essentially organized by the Chinese state. They said what could or couldn't be seen and at what time, forcing the WHO boss, after the results were published, to say, 
essentially this is nonsense um, because we weren't allowed proper access. So whilst it might not matter completely in terms of the response that we gave where COVID came from, I think it does matter in terms of where we go from this point on, uh, even just in our relationship to China and, and how we deal with the country um, to, to ensure that something like this doesn't happen again, if it's true. Also, the, this story shows to the extent how um, vigorously the um, access to information was policed, not, not by China, but by um, social media outlets in the West. Facebook called it a massive... When um, the lab leak conspiracy theories, as they were called at the time, started, Facebook tried to, tried to crack down on it. I think they've only just stopped, haven't they? Yeah, they, they, they've only just stopped as this news has, has, has now come to light. Yeah. So it, it just shows that... Uh, very dangerous to mess with information. Well, this is it. This is where this is where the, the the perfect storm happened. Where the virus, when it came to the West, it obviously intermingled with the cultural malaise in the West, which is a number of things. One, it's um, the 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 blot of um, you know intersectionality and, and that that way of looking at um, people's interpersonal relationships, and also the completely unchecked and unaccountable power of Silicon Valley to to be the arbiters of what is and isn't true um you know any any notion that this was um that there was any sort of wrongdoing from the chinese government was met with oh that's xenophobic or that's racist or whatever um and silicon valley took it upon themselves to bury this anything that that, that deviated slightly from the institutional truth of what the what's behind the virus was just completely censored by by Silicon Valley. It also mixed with the um, sort of coddled nature of the Western world now that everything has to be covered in bubble wrap. Nothing, I, I think yeah. um, I don't know who, who wrote this, but they compared the uh, the safe space culture, which by this point had become dominant, with the um, support of lockdowns. Yeah. If they if they want a safe space around this, they're going to impose that on other people because other people are a risk, mm. and we have we effectively have a prison hmm. i i honestly at this point i i really don't see an, an insight oh no june war on terror never ended that's fine right. i mean june, june june 21st if it does go ahead um which i i'm i'm doubtful of not because of numbers but because of just our state of leadership then it'll only be temporary respite we'll, we'll be back in lockdown by the autumn and even then, I, I wrote earlier on a, a member of SAGE who has basically said we need to start to learn to live with COVID without the restrictions um, and, and had a good thing to say about the, the impact of restrictions, actually. So it's fairly, fairly hopeful on that. But even he was arguing that mask wearing, for example, should stay in place after June 21st. So it's sort of you get to one of those where depending on the amount that they're still imposing work from home is another idea which i think is going to carry on past that date it becomes an essential lockdown in in all but name it, to a large extent um if we're still having to wear masks if we're still not allowed a certain size events or if you need a vaccine passport to do so or if as it now seems pretty certain that um that uh healthcare workers at least at, at care homes have are forced to be vaccinated against COVID, then we're in essentially the same state of mind under the same ruling, um, which could snap back in seconds to the, the current state of lockdown we're in now. Yeah. 
was standing in, in a crowded pub post June 21st watching England play at the Euros be like a sword of Damocles dangling over all our heads that, and we've already yeah, yeah. That, COVID's already been established as a seasonal virus anyway, so it's going to pick up in the yeah. winter. That that's um, going to be that's going to be the emotional legacy of 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 lockdown. Is that any time life feels normal, yeah. the sword of Damocles is going to be above your head? I'm well, just waiting, waiting for the articles and the government advice to say, "Oh, don't celebrate yeah. too hard during the Euros." Yeah, absolutely. One of the one of the examples of this then is travel, um, something which I, I remember last year when people were cancelling holidays, uh, people saying, well, at least next year we'll be back to normal and can go on a holiday. We'll have a proper holiday in 2021, which of course has been uh, copied and pasted to 2021 regarding 2022 uh, with everything being cancelled. And we've got the, the sort of Damocles moment now with the, the travel green, amber and red lists um, where you're told a country is on a certain list, you book your holiday, and then your holiday gets cancelled. Or if you're even more unfortunate, as many in Portugal are at the moment, you book your holiday, you travel there, and within two days you're told, actually, you're now on the amber list. And when you get back, you'll have to isolate, you have to take more tests, fork out more money, which you can't afford because you've spent all of your, uh, your savings on a holiday for a bit of a break after a year of turmoil, um, which in a sense seems to me like a, a form of abuse, dangling this thing over somebody's head, allowing them to have a, a small snippet and then pulling it away straight again. It's abuse. It's abuse. The um, no, no moral government would inflict this upon the people. Um, and uh, I, I know we, we mentioned before briefly the the Fauci emails, and they're still emerging, and they're still being you know sort of verified. So we'll. We'll, we'll avoid going too deep into the rabbit hole there. But one of the emails, which I found to be particularly damning, was advice given at the start of the pandemic, which warned um, the US not to inflict universal lockdowns or state lockdowns or whatever, but to um, do you know, target shielding, which was also recommended by the Great Barrington Declaration itself, was uh, promptly censored by the oligarchs. Um, that... That should always have been the approach, you know, especially now that the the vaccine's been rolled out, where where not only are the three of us not vulnerable, we never have been, uh, and we won't be for another 50 years, 60 years. Um, Not only that, but also now, now that people are being vaccinated who are of that vulnerable cohort, we don't pose a risk to them anymore. We can live our lives. Exactly. Um, that's the part that I find infuriating, but also heartbreaking, is that it's like no one's listening to that. No one's following the, the basic logic of we aren't a threat anymore. You know, we, we, we can't hand it on to granny anymore. We can go and live our lives. The, 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 the idea that we're this is this is this is now. You know, uh, the, 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 the idea that this is, a, this is a great big communitarian public effort to defeat this invisible enemy is bollocks. It's, 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 it's jump the shark has gone too far. The people who wield this power are completely high on it. They're unwilling to, to give it back. And I think we better just, you know, settle in for the long haul. I've never, yeah. I, I've never been more pessimistic about this than I am right now. Oh dear. Well, that's that's not going to cheer our, our listeners up on a nice sunny day like this, is it? Well, it used to be three weeks to flatten the curve, which was policy. Now look where we are. Mm.
Yeah, that seems like a lifetime ago. Now it now it's booked Portugal in 2022. It is. Well, uh, another country which has just announced some new travel guidance is France. Um, and you can always rely on the French to be even more ridiculous than we are. Um, so their policy is that you can only enter the country, I believe, if you're vaccinated. Uh, if you're fully vaccinated, you don't have to quarantine or anything like that. But even if you've received one dose of a vaccine, you must still quarantine for seven days upon your arrival. And that, by the way, just to be even more insane, applies to children up to the age of 11 or down to the age of 11, I should say. So even 11-year-olds, if they've only received one dose, which of course will be in many months' time, even if you agree with that happening in the first place, won't be able to enter the country uh, without having to quarantine for seven days, which, let's face it, for people who have jobs is impossible. Um, just won't be able to go in. And, and I feel sorry for the, the tourist industry. I mean, especially big cities where people go for a weekend break, essentially. Well, a weekend break becomes rather difficult if you have to quarantine for seven days before it begins. It becomes uh, a little bit more complicated than that and, of course, a lot more expensive. Uh, so the, a lot of the, the industries which used to rely on tourists coming in and eating and drinking uh, and sleeping in, in their venues are just going to be crushed by this. Mm. I'd yeah. quite like to go to France in the, next, in the next year or so. Well, I wouldn't if I had to wear a mask. I'm, I'm yeah. against the idea of going on holiday anywhere until I can mm. go and actually have a holiday rather than yeah, that's the thing. go and show yeah. this and that and wear this and that and you know. Yeah, that's the thing. Is that a, you know? I, I'd um, yeah. I it's like a, I don't want to travel. Obviously, not not because of a safety thing, but because I just can't be bothered to deal with the the hassle of traveling in the COVID era. Yeah, yeah. And you see uncertainty as well. My uh, uni housemates were thinking about booking a, um, a holiday in Portugal. We were talking about it two, two weeks ago. And I'm thinking, is, isn't, aren't things likely to change? And they were saying, no, no, no. I don't think they've got ahead and booked it. But I think they're singing a different tune today. Well, I know someone who did, I think, either the night before or two nights before the announcement. Um, and what, what happens now? Do you cancel? Uh, will the travel company let you cancel? Will they make it easy or difficult for you to cancel? Well, I, I've I've seen I've seen an uh, adverts for um, holiday holiday maker holiday um, bookers where you can get COVID insurance now. Right. Well, that's another nice way of companies making money, isn't it? <laughs> that sounds very expensive as well. I bet. I bet. COVID warranty in case uh, the morons in charge of your country decide that you, you can't have fun anymore. I mean, I, I, I wonder what um, sort of the risk calculator for that would be, you know, how you can put in your details and it tells you what percentage you are likely to be affected by this. Could it just be 100%, literally just a blanket? <laughs> yeah, because like, it's not, you know, protecting you from the virus. It's literally as if your holiday is, is if you're forced to cancel it because of restrictions. Okay, well, I think on that, we will we'll break away from COVID uh, until next week. Uh, but talk instead about some miscellaneous topics that have occurred through the week. Sam, you've got one that you wanted to bring up. Mm, it's, um, yes, so considering we're, we're celebrating uh, one year of uh, the Cultural Re Revolution of 2020, um, one of the more symbolic moments of that in the UK was the toppling of the Edward Colson statue in Bristol, mm. which uh, not only was it vandalised, torn down, and uh, I believe stamped on and punched by protesters, bravely it was then rolled throughout bristol bravely as the police stood by and did nothing <laughs> bravely. 
Well, I'm referring to the mostly peaceful statue bashing. Well, well, I'm referring to the bravery of punching a brass statue in the face. But um, it was then it was then rolled through Bristol and dumped into the harbour. It, it was retrieved from the from the the floor of the harbour. Uh, yeah, about a year ago today. Um, and um, so it's it's very clear that at like a civic level in Bristol, this was not only tolerated, but also endorsed. So uh, Sean Sobers from the Bristol History Commission, which sounds ominous, um, who helped the, uh, the display being organized in the M Shed Museum in Bristol, said what we don't want people to feel is that it's is that this display in any way is celebrating or commemorating or commiserating Colston as an individual. Now, it's important to note how the statue is depicted in this display. It is not standing, it, it has not been cleaned up, and it, is, it has not been contextualized. It is still left laying flat, it is still covered in graffiti, and the whole point of the exhibition is not to say this is a statue of a, of a guy who, through good or bad, essentially funded the building of Bristol as a modern city. It's instead, it, it's a it's a, a celebration of the Cultural Re- Revolution. Hmm. Now, uh, it's important to say, by the way, you've you've uh, you've used the wrong phrase there, which is very easy to do in these scenarios. It's uh, n- specifically not allowed to be called an exhibition because that would imply that there's something to be commemorated, uh, but instead a display, uh, which is far more far more neutral than PC. Um, but no, I mean th- they've given the excuse of it being too expensive at the moment to lift it up. Um, which is tosh. And, and it's also interesting that it's taken them a year to be able to lie something down on a plank uh, and essentially do nothing else and call it a display. Um, I don't know whether that's a sign of uh, council bureaucracy uh, being completely useless or instead them being too scared to announce what to do. Because I think before this, it was hidden in storage. But no, they've tried to say that it's a non-partisan, non-political display but it's quite the opposite if you've got a statue lying down in submission covered in all the marks of its of of its abusers essentially um then that's making a political statement it's Mm. it's it to an extent is what's the word endorsing what's already happened yeah endorsing it yeah that's the one it's it's endorsing the actions of those people who as the police stood by and did nothing uh pulled down uh, a statue and dumped it in a river. Uh, I don't see what's non-partisan about mm. that. Well, um, what else they, they've done is the the display, as you uh, put it, Michael, is about, um, it coincides with a a, um, a local vote on what should happen to the statue. Right. Um, so the, um, yes, it, it was, uh, so the, 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 the question is twofold. One, what will happen long-term to the statue? And two, what will happen with the empty plinth? Well, if you look at uh, what mayors around the UK have been doing, specifically in London, with uh, empty plinths, there's uh, not a lot of hope there to be to be gleaned. Well, I think on that then, we'll, having talked about both the culture wars and COVID, which is enough of a headache for one day, we'll, we'll end there and join back again next week. So thanks all for those who have listened. See you then. Cheers.